a prominent American broadcast journalist, Edward Murrow, whose memorable radio addresses during World War II helped to inform and inspire many Americans, once noted that our major obligation is not to mistake slogans for solutions. Our major obligation is not to mistake slogans for solutions. I think that's worth considering, especially since we live in an age where slogans are prominent in everyday life. I mean, think of some of the, the popular slogans by some of the most famous brands, like Nike's Just Do It, meant to provoke enterprise and effort for you to get after it. Or think of Red Bulls, Red Bulls has wings, promising extraterrestrial energy to us mere mortals. To even more cultural slogans like live and let live. Or one that often gets promoted and paraded around during times of the year like this, New Year, New You. The promise that with this new year, there will be a transformed you, a transformed set of goals and dreams and desires and achievements and opportunities. And often you find even churches promising the same kinds of things, promoting the same kind of promises. This will be the year of breakthrough. This will be the year of prosperity. This will be the year of purpose. This will be the year of freedom. But I wonder how many of us have been frustrated by the futility found in these sometimes empty slogans. I mean, it's not as if when the clock pushes past 1159 on December 31st that all your problems get pushed to the past as well. No, like smoke in the clothes, they, they carry along with you right into the new year. So that even with all the new hopes and new goals and new dreams of a new you in a new year, what comes, comes along right beside them is the same old weights and worries. Often multiplied by even more weights and worries. You come at the beginning of a new year with problems, the threats, perhaps physical threats to your body, your health, perhaps financially with instability at your jobs, perhaps relational threats with conflicts in your marriage or with your children, with other church members. I'm not sure of every single thing you're facing this morning. I'm not sure of all the little things going on in your hearts and in your lives. And while I do hope that in many ways this would be a year of purpose and some prosperity, that this would be a year of breakthrough and freedom, I cannot promise you that any of those things will be true. I can't promise you that in any of those areas that you will be a new you this year. But what I can promise is that with this new year, what you and I most need and what you and I will most find is the same God. New year, same God. Friends, that's why we're beginning this morning a new year with a really old book. In fact, it's the first book in all the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. I mean, if you have read Genesis, if you've gone through yearly Bible reading plans, perhaps as far as you've gotten is Genesis. This is a no judgment zone. I wonder if you ever heard a sermon series through Genesis. If not, that is what we are enterprising to do over the next few months and perhaps even years as we walk through this book and see what it has to tell us about the Lord and his power and his purposes and his faithfulness to accomplish his purposes for his people throughout all eternity. And so as we begin a new sermon series at the beginning of this new year, would you turn with me to the beginning of the Bible 
to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And this morning, we're only going to look at the first two verses together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And if you need a Bible, right, to read along, feel free to find the Bible under the chairs and take that Bible home to you. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As we study this passage this morning, these two brief verses packed with so much explosive truth. Here's what I think is the the primary emphasis, the main point of these two verses. Quite simply, that God is matchless in his power and sovereignty. God is matchless in his power and sovereignty. As we walk through these two verses, we'll hang our thoughts on two lessons we learn first about God and secondly about the world. And those will serve as the two points of the sermon. Point number one, about God. Point number two, about the world. Point number one will be the longest, so don't trip. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on verse two and a lot of time on verse one. So it will not be a two hour sermon, I guarantee. All right. Point number one about God. Look with me again at verse one, as we read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The subject of the first sentence in the first book of the Bible is God himself. Indeed, the subject of the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is God himself. At the beginning of this book, the author wants us to know what this book is about. For those of us coming to this book, to the book of Genesis or to the book of the Bible as a whole, he wants us to know what we're in store for. The author wants to to filter out any kind of wrong expectations of what you might find here and to input some of the right expectations of what you can expect. This book is not primarily a scientific exploration. People come to Genesis often with modern scientific questions, trying to either prove or disprove scientific discoveries about the Earth's existence or about the age of the Earth and and all the rest. Those are not questions that the Bible is meaning to answer. This is not primarily what this book is for. It does not scratch every single scientific itch. This book is not primarily a scientific exploration. Neither is this book primarily a historical narrative. It doesn't just serve as a kind of old history book uh, giving detailed significant dates and people and events. It has that, of course, but it's not primarily a historical narrative, nor is this book a mythological fantasy meant simply to entertain our minds with fanciful imagery and details. It's not some really old version of Lord of the Rings, beautiful literature, moving literature filled with imagery, but not true. No, this book is primarily a theological treatise. It's teaching us theology. It's the study of God himself. In the beginning, God. For some of you, that might already turn you off. We want to be entertained. We we want scientific questions answered. We we, we want firm dates and, and facts so that we can answer Bible trivia questions. There's often something in us, isn't it? That doesn't want to hear about that doesn't want to learn about, that doesn't want to study about God. But this book here is about God himself. And so if God bores you, this book might bore you. 
I wonder if that strikes you this morning. Have you noticed how you approach the Bible? Or why is it that YouTube so satisfies us that we can spend hours upon hours upon it? Why is it that TikTok and Instagram so satisfy us that we can scroll endlessly on those things? Why is it that cell phones so satisfy us that we can spend hours upon hours on your screen, just check your screen time usage? But we can't seem to give five or ten minutes to reading the Bible. What does that say about you and your view of God if this book is about God? For, for others, you might say, I already know about God. Why do I need to learn about him again? Well, because on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis, as troubles and trials and competing interests come our way, we often lose sight of God and how big he really is. And what we need is a reorientation of priorities. What we need is a rekindling of affections. We need to see the Lord's splendor in order to confront our unbelief, in order to comfort us in our fears, in order to give us courage in the midst of our calamities, and in order to bring praise to our lips to our great God and King. That's what this book is for. That's why the original author wrote this book. Who is the author? Well, it's Moses. That's been the consensus throughout church history. And while Moses' name is not mentioned one time in Genesis, the Old and New Testaments both explicitly mention Moses as the author of what we know as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, collectively often called the Book of Moses or the Law of Moses. We won't read all those places you can find those kind of explicit references, but if you want to write them down, I'd love for you to check what I say with what the Bible actually says. Here are a few references. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Numbers chapter 33, verse 2. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Joshua chapter 23, verse 6. Mark chapter 12, verse 26. And Luke chapter 24, verse 44. If you didn't grab all those, I'm happy to share my manuscript with you afterwards. The Bible testifies. Church history has attested to that Moses wrote this book. But a question has to come into our minds. How could Moses write Genesis when Genesis speaks of things that happened before Moses was born? Before anyone was born, things like the creation of the world. Well, Moses wrote just as every other human author in the Bible wrote as he was carried along by God, the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21 says that no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by man's own will. But man wrote as God, the Holy Spirit spoke and carried him along. And Moses wrote just as every other author in the Bible wrote to an audience. And Moses didn't write in a vacuum. He wrote in real space and in real time to a specific people in a specific historical and cultural context. Many believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, just as the people of Israel were on the precipice of entering into the promised land. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt by God. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, this culture swarming with polytheistic worship. It was all over their temples, all over their structures, from worshiping the sun god, Ra, to to, to worshiping the moon god, Khonsu. They've been rescued and reclaimed to be God's chosen people to worship him alone amidst all the other polytheistic and pagan practices among the nations surrounding them. Egypt and Babylon and and Ur, all these places were worshiping all kinds of gods. God had promised long before to their forefathers to give them their own land. And yet a previous generation had failed to enter it, had failed to occupy it for fear of that land's inhabitants. 
You remember the story. They, they get right up to the promised land. They, they send spies into the land. They get into the land, the spies, and they say the people over there are like giants. Compared to them, we look like grasshoppers. Compared to them, God looks like a grasshopper. And so God had them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion, because of their refusal to trust him. But at the end of the 40 years of wandering, here they were now finally about to inhabit the promised land. But the land was still inhabited by people bigger and mightier than they were. It was still inhabited by people stronger and more militarily advanced than they were. It was still inhabited by people who called on thousands of gods to protect them and to fight for them. There were all kinds of fears and doubts. There were temptations to turn back and to turn to the practices of all those around them. What the people of Israel most needed at such a time is what we most need in times of doubt and fear and temptation. They needed a bigger view of God. And so Moses, in about 1440 B.C., inspired by the Spirit, picks up his primitive stylus and scribbles on his ancient iPad these first words to these people. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Israel did not most need to know about their circumstances. Israel did not most need to know about their enemies and their advanced weaponry. What Israel most needed to know was about their God. And friends, so do we today. Several things here then. In one verse of the Bible, in the first verse of the Bible, that God through Moses is meaning to teach us about God. Seven things that we see verse one teaches us about God. First, God exists. God exists. We read in the beginning, God. This author, this book has no conception of a godless world. Indeed, for this book, such a statement is a contradiction in terms. How could they be, there be a world without a God? And notice here, Moses does not try to argue for the existence of God with deep philosophical reasoning or with the kind of long diatribe. Let me tell you why you, this makes sense. God's existence is simply matter-of-factly presented as a fixed certainty. Later in the biblical literature, David in Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God and Moses is no fool. And Moses is trying to prevent us from being fools. He brings to bear with clarity and certainty that God exists. Not only does God exist, God has always existed. A second thing we learn about God from verse one is that God is eternal. God is eternal. He has always been. Uh, notice we read in the beginning, God was always there. Uh, that's not what we usually find in writings or in movies. Uh, when a main character is introduced, we, we usually learn where they came from. I mean, Marvel has made millions marketing movies based on origin stories. Uh, we expect the same thing here, don't we? We expect verse one to read something like, in the beginning, two superpowered parents created this kind of semi-demi-god called God. But God has no mother or no father. God has no beginning and no end. So kids, little children in the room, when you ask that very innocence and very important question, where did God come from? And your parents give you what seems like an off-the-cuff, made-up response because they don't know any better. And they tell you God didn't come from anywhere. He's always existed. Don't grow frustrated at your parents. They did not make that up. That's what the Bible actually says. The Bible's claim, even in Genesis 1-1, is that he's always been there. 
in the beginning. It doesn't go on to tell us about the beginning of God. Rather, it tells us about the beginning of space and time as we know it. And God preceded it. But before there was a beginning, God was. The rest of scripture just goes on to testify of that. I mean, I understand that Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, the author of Genesis 1, who talks about the eternality of God, this same Moses writes other books. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, but later on in the biblical record, we, we find a kind of strange insertion in the book of the Psalter in Psalm chapter 90, the, the Song of Moses. And how does Moses start off Psalm chapter 90? Listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or oh, listen to these words that we read in the very last book of the Bible. So at the beginning of the Bible, we learn about God's eternality. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1-8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Uh, omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is eternal. The theologians often link God's eternality to his aseity as well. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity is just a, a word that, that, that links together two Latin words, two small Latin words, ah, which means from, and se, which means self. To, to talk about, about God's aseity then, of God's aseity, is to acknowledge that God is from and of himself. He is completely self-originating and reliant upon nothing or no one else for his existence. Friends, therefore, God don't need you. God don't need a world. God don't need any elements or any people, anything outside of himself to exist. So then, why did he create us? It's not because of some deficiency in him, but because of the overflow of his love for us. From all eternity past, he is who he is and he depends on nothing and no one. And that's actually good news. Amen. You don't need a God like you. You need a God that's different from you, Amen. who's of and from himself. And so he can give of and from himself. A third thing we learn about God in verse one. Though this one is perhaps more veiled, is that God is triune. God is triune. We don't see this in our English Bibles, but the word translated God is the word Elohim, which is a plural noun followed by a singular verb of what this God did. We find here, even in the first verse of the Bible, something of the underlaying of the later to be revealed and unfolded mystery of the Trinity. That there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. I mean, even in verse two, if you, as we just read earlier, we read of the spirit of God. And in the New Testament, the gospel writer John is intentional in, and now he starts his book, uh, tying the gospel of John, the beginning of the gospel of John to the beginning of Genesis 1.1. John writes in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The, the, the triune God is, is there at the beginning. We learn that God is triune. A fourth thing we learn about God in verse 1 is that God is creator. God is creator. Not only is and was this God existence, he is active. He did something. What did he do? Verse one, in the beginning, God created. That word created is the Hebrew word bara. 
I say that not to kind of boast in very minimal knowledge of Hebrew, but because every single time that word bara, create, is used in the Old Testament, it always has God as its subject. So no matter how many passages and books you read in all the, the 39 chapters of the Old Testament, whenever you read about people, you might read that people make something. You might read that people build something. You might read that people form something. You might read that people fashion something. But in all the 39 chapters of the Old Testament, God alone creates. Only God creates. And what does God create? Everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an example there of a merism. Some of our English teachers may know what a merism is. It's when you use two opposite words to, to portray, to convey one universal truth, right? To, to, to express the totality of something, right? And, and so the author here, Moses here, is using these two opposite terms, heaven and earth, not as kind of two separate poles, but to talk about that God created the entire cosmos, that God created the entire universe, heaven and earth, everything, the entire atmosphere has its beginning belonging to God. How this must have stuck in the ancient Israelites' ears. Having, as we heard earlier, been surrounded by cultures who had other explanations for how the world existed. I mean, there were other creation stories floating around at the time when Moses is writing this. I think sometimes Christians can think, hey, we got the first book, right? right? We got the market on this, right? We got the truth, which we do, right? But we believe that it's only true because it came first. That's not true. When Moses wrote, there were many other literatures, writings around. There was a, a deep written history in the ancient Near East that the people of Israel knew about, and there were other creation stories. There were the creation stories of the Babylonians. They had their great myth, their great epic called Enuma Elish, where the, the god Marduk uh, creates the entire universe after battling the sea goddess Tiamat and, and creating the universe from her carcass. So, so as Israel just kind of looked around the nations, everybody had a creation story. Right. Everybody was talking about how the world was created, and it was generally by the gods warring against one another and the world becoming the kind of output from it. There were also the pantheon of gods and in the Egyptian culture, each the creator or sustainer of something. There was the creator of the, the, the sea, the creator of the moon, the creator of the sun. Every kind of god had a separate realm of creation. But surrounded by all this data, downloaded with all this data by all the nations around them, Moses reminds the Israelites, Moses reminds us, in the beginning, the one God, the true God, the only God created the entire universe. And he created it out of nothing. Some people take Genesis chapter 1-1 as a kind of summary statement of all that follows where we see God bringing things to life through his word in six days. Verse one is believed sums up the entire creation account. It's kind of a, a heading to all that follows. You see all that God does in six days and, and previous to that is a kind of heading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that's not the traditional understanding of Genesis 1.1. I don't think that's what Genesis 1.1 is expressing. I think Genesis 1-1 is expressing God's very first act of creation. The first event of creation sometime before the first day that we read about in Genesis 1 verse 3 is the creation of the cosmos as a whole. I mean, you see, before there was light to bring to the earth in verse 3, there had to be an earth to bring the light to in verse 2. And before there was an earth in verse 2, there had to be a God who made the entire heavens and the earth in verse one. Nothing exists by itself. The world is not self-sufficient and independent. Only God is. God brought the universe into existence. And he did it 
without using any pre-existent matter, without any, using any elements that were already there. No, God created all the elements. He created all the matter. He created all the atoms and the neutrons and all the protons and all the rest of the world from nothing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, tells us by faith. That's what you need to believe things like this. But don't get it twisted. You need a lot of faith to believe the other kind of things people say about the creation of the world, too. By faith, Hebrews eleven three says, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God ain't take something and make something else. God took nothing and made everything. This pushes against not only the polytheistic views of creation in the ancient Near East, it also pushes against the modern naturalistic views of our day, against people who treat matter as if matter is God. I mean, prominent former astrologist and agnostic Carl Sagan once famously wrote in his book, Cosmos, the cosmos is all there is. The cosmos is all there has been. And the cosmos, the world, the universe is all that will be. There's all kinds of voices voicing their own versions of truth. There always have been. The question is, who will we believe? The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the universe from nothing. He is creator. A fifth thing we learn about God in this passage, which kind of flows from him being creator, is that he's all powerful. God is all powerful. I mean, how else can you explain creating everything from nothing? Nobody can do that. I mean, I'm amazed when I watch uh, TV shows, when I watch Chopped on the Food Network. And these chefs are able to take a, a few meager ingredients and make these amazing dishes out of a few little small things. I'm amazed when I watch the Property Brothers on HGTV and they take this kind of bland, small little space and they transform it into a luxurious living place. But they at least had the ingredients. And there was stuff already in place. But this God had nothing and made everything. Well, he had nothing outside himself. And he didn't need it. Because in himself, he had everything. He had all power as the all-powerful God to bring the whole world into being. We'll see more of God's amazing power next week. As he simply speaks and brings life and all kinds of life springing into existence. A sixth thing we learn about God in this passage is that God is transcendent. God is transcendent. In other words, God is not a part of his creation, but rather God is distinct to his creation. God is superior above his creation. There is a clear distinction that we see in verse one that carries on along throughout the entire Bible and that is absolutely critical for us to understand. That there is a creator and there is a creation. The two are absolutely separate. The latter can never go above the former. The one is always above the other. Genesis 1.1 then opposes pantheism, the belief that, that God and the universe are one. It's the kind of stuff that, that spiritual sounding folks be saying, like, what are, you, what are you even saying? What are you talking about? Uh, God is in the tree. Uh, God is in the air. Right? God is mixed with, at one with his universe. Uh, this verse is meaning to obliterate that understanding and that instinct. No, there is one creator above and over his creation, and that distinction lasts from beginning to the end. And so you need to worship him alone. Seventh, and finally, we learn in verse one that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He created the world and he is over the world. He runs and rules the universe. He sustains and controls the world he created from the very beginning. I mean, how was the universe 
as we know it today, still in existence, still functioning by the hand of the God who brought it into existence. The world, every single second of every single day, operates on God. Your car runs on fuel. The world runs on God. Apart from the creator's activity and control, there is no creation. If God takes his figurative foot off the gas for one millisecond, no creation. All right, so we read that God created the heavens and the earth. He's also sovereignly over it, running it, controlling it every single second of the day. The creation reveals God's sovereign rule over everything. A sovereign rule that also displays God's purpose in his creation. I mean, if this God made everything, there had to be a reason. In Job chapter 42, a book we studied over last summer, after God questioned Job as to Job's existence and his supposed vast knowledge of all the inner workings of the world, God kind of called him to to bear, where were you when I created the universe? God was trying to poke through Job's kind of faulty presumption that, that he could kind of piece together why things had gone the way they, they did in his life. Job came to understand, and no, I can't piece it all together, but God has a purpose tied to his creation. So that Job says in Job chapter 42, verse 2, I know now that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He understood that God's sovereign power and creation was tied to God's sovereign purposes for his creation. God didn't just make the world because he was bored. He made the world to become an arena for his glory. A glory that would be revealed and filled in the world as he filled the world with people made in his image. And a glory that would be ultimately shown in this God coming to the world he made in his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue his creatures from their sin, to save them by his death and resurrection. You see, God isn't just piecing things together as he goes along. He's not like, oh, there's a kind of missing puzzle piece over there. Where can I find a piece that fits? From all eternity past, God has had a plan. A plan to redeem, a plan to save. And the very first step in that plan, creating a universe in which he would carry out his plan. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that famous passage we all know. We read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We love John 3, 16 and 17. We believe John 3, 16 and 17. But for John 3, 16 and 17 to be a reality, Genesis 1, 1 had to be a reality. You see, for God to send his son into the world to save, there had to be a world to send his son into. In other words, even here at creation, the cross of Christ is in God's mind. He's making a world to send his son into. The salvation of sinners like us, even at creation, by Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection is in God's mind. And he sovereignly puts events in place for that purpose from the very beginning. What's it all mean for us? What are the implications that Genesis 1-1 has for us? Well, I hope the first response is praise to God from our hearts and our lips. I mean, look at his majesty. Look at his sovereignty. Look at his power. Look at his purposes. Look at his eternality. Look at God in Genesis 1-1. In that way, Genesis 1-1, I think, is meant to be a corrective to our natural way of life, where first and foremost, we look to ourselves. We look to what's going on with us. We look at what's going on around us. And God knows it. God knows that that's our natural inclination. And so in God's kindness, he gives us a book. And so in God's kindness, he doesn't have us going to search for what this book is about right there at the front. On page one, 
He tells us where we need to be focused. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As soon as you open up Genesis, at the beginning of that Bible reading plan, maybe you don't make it too far this year, but if you just make it to Genesis 1-1, you're on good footing for a good year. Because you need most importantly, your view of God enhanced. You see, when people are big, as one author said, God is small. But when God is big, we understand our purpose in life is to honor him and to glorify him. Everything makes sense. God is calling us, don't look first to yourself or your situations, look first to me. And when we do, what a God we find. Look at his power making everything from nothing. How then can anything oppose him? Israel, as they picked up this this new book from God to Moses, to them, as they picked up this book, they needed to hear this message before they went into the promised land where there were many enemies of them and their God, but they need not fear. On our side, I don't care how many thousands of multitudes of gods they have on our side is the God who made the heavens and the earth. How easily could he just topple over any little king or kingdom? It's the same with us. The God who made everything has the power to protect you, to sustain you, to strengthen you. What are you afraid of when he is your God? What do you think he doesn't have the power to transform in you? You don't think he, he has the power, the one who's, who created the universe? You don't think he has the power to restrain you from that sin? You don't think the God who made the heavens and the earth at a whim has the power to put new desires in your heart? His power is amazing. What are you tempted by that will lead you away from him? Again, they've long been false gods. They have long been false ideologies trying to disprove or discredit God or trying to deny God's power by promoting a life lived for yourself mentality. We don't live in a unique age. The devil would love for us to think that there's more opposition to God now than at any other time. There's always been opposition to God. People have always been trying to disprove or discredit God. They've always been false programs, false promotions that that try to discredit the Lord's plan and his word. But every ideology, every God falls short of this God, of the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. He is matchless. Why then would you trust in created things? Why would you trust in created people? Why would you trust in the created propagandas that created people make? to rage against their creator when the creator of everything is calling you to turn to him. So so why are you turning away from him? Why have you turned away from him? For some this morning, God has, has perhaps become an afterthought. Item number 310 on your kind of priority list of things and people and places to visit and and priorities. I pray that Genesis 1-1 would confront you this morning to put God at the top of your minds. For some here this morning, you hear, but you have no thought of God at all. I pray that's not the case, but in a room this size, I trust that there is. I've been there. I've sat in many church services, faking the funk, don't have a single desire for the Lord, but I'll put up with a few hours. You've pushed God away. Too demanding, too stiff, too distant. It was a long time ago. You think life will be easier without some nagging idea of a God over you. You think life will be simpler. You think life will be more enjoyable that way. Uh, But friends, understand what happens when you push the author of life away. You die. Physically, that will become a certainty, but spiritually, that is what it is now. 
If God created everything and you push the creator away, where does that leave you? Dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And so I don't care how convinced you are that this is all baloney. I don't care how many people are convincing you, smart people, people with amazing polished YouTube videos convincing you of, of things about God or the Bible or against God in the Bible. I don't care how convinced you are, you are wrong. And you are dead in your sins because you pushed away the creator of life. But amazingly, the creator of life has not pushed you away. Genesis 1-1 is for you this morning. The creator is calling you to come to him. The amazing thing this passage sets up is that he has not distanced himself from us. As transcendent as he is, he is imminent to us. He's transcendent over us, but he's come near. The creator of everything actually became like his creation. The eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, the one there at the beginning with God, creating all things with the father and the son became a creature. He took on flesh and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Friends, I pray that you trust in God, not only as your creator this morning, I pray you trust in God's son as your savior this morning. Let Genesis 1-1 lead you to repent of your sins this morning, especially the sin of unbelief. Trust in God and trust in God's son for your salvation. You want to learn more about what that looks like. You want to talk to anybody about that after service. Find anybody sitting next to you. Come talk to me at the door. We love to tell you about how the Lord not only creates, but also saves. Genesis 1-1 is not just calling us to learn about God, but also to embrace him with full-hearted faith. We learn not only about God in this passage, we also learn about the world. And so secondly, and very briefly, point number two, about the world. About the world. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. We read, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth that God created was uninhabitable. It was without form and empty. It was dark. The prophet Jeremiah later uses these same terms to speak of a wilderness or wasteland, to speak of the exile of the people of God. God made a universe, but it was not yet ready to be lived in. But there's anticipation that the situation is about to change. As we read that the, the spirit of God is hovering, about to bring life as he always does. And key in the verses we'll look at next week is that God transforms the world by his spirit through his word. In the verses we'll study next week, we'll see that God forms. What we read here is without form. And next week we'll read in the passage that we'll look at that God fills what we read here is void and empty. We read next week that God brings light to what we read here is darkness. The world is God's creation upon which God will display his goodness, upon which God will make it habitable, upon which God will bring life. Israel, the original audience of this book would have been struck here again. Remember where they are when they first received this book. In the wilderness. In the wasteland. But God was about to bring them up out of it. Into the promised land. Into a land flowing with milk and honey. Into a, a habitable land. Good to live in. How could they know that God would do it? 
because he'd done it before. He'd already brought life from a wasteland. He'd already prepared a place for his people. And he's still in that business, bringing life and order, forming and filling. His spirit is hovering even this morning over the earth and even over and in this place, preparing to bring life to you. He can turn a wilderness into his dwelling place. He can turn your heart into his home. The world is no longer without form or void because God fills it. He brings life and order. He's at work in this world. He's at work in you both then and now. Friends, at the beginning of a new year, who or what will we trust in? Slogans? New year? New you? Or truth? New year? Same God. I pray that Genesis 1, 1 and 2 enlivens us and emboldens us and confronts us and comforts us to know that in whatever we might face this year, that the big, sovereign, powerful, majestic God is there and is for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that reorients our minds, that restores our souls, that brings life to deadness. Lord, we thank you that you are over us, that you control everything, that you give life out of nothing. We pray you would do that even this morning, Lord. Bring life out of nothing, we pray. Sustain life, we pray, of your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.